we have a great episode of That Creative Life for you featuring Stephen Hackett, co-founder of Relay FM. We dive deep into building a podcast network and also the current state of audio. There's a lot of things going on. So thank you for tuning in. And it is my pleasure to introduce our first sponsor. They are so near and dear to my heart. So 80 episodes in, I've been waiting for you. B&H Photo. Thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast. Honestly, it's so easy for me to talk about them and they do such an amazing job empowering creators here in New York City um, that truly, when I first started this podcast, I was like, you know what? You know who would make the best podcast sponsor? B&H. And we've arrived. We're here. So if you don't know what B&H is, I'm sure you do, but B&H is the largest non-chain electronics retailer in the U.S. So they are always so amazing, like I said, at supporting creators locally here. They're one of the reasons why Hustle New York happens, that networking party that I occasionally throw in New York. It wouldn't have been possible without them. So if you're a creative, B&H Photo should be the place where you get your gear from. Photo, video, audio, computers. They literally have it all. <laughs> so not only is it a joy to visit their superstore here in Manhattan, I literally feel like a kid in a candy shop when I go in, but their shipping is so fast. And you know you'll get great customer service and support online when you're trying to make those gear purchases. They care about you. They really care. <laughs> so they have, you know, an amazing YouTube channel and places like the B&H Explorer blog where you can help, you know, inform your purchases. So Wow. Can you tell I'm excited? I'm excited, everyone. And this is a really fun podcast because we talk about the creative process um, behind podcasting and audio and the gear that I use, that Steven uses. So we'll get into that later. Um, but as always, my podcasting gear is linked in the show notes below. Those B&H links, check them out. And without further ado, Stephen Hackett, everyone. Welcome to That Creative Life. Hi, my name is Sarah Dici and I am your host. I talk with artists, YouTubers, CEOs, and everyone in between. I hope this podcast helps you live your best creative life. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of That Creative Life. We're here with Stephen Hackett from Relay FM. Um, you are the co-founder, and we actually recently did a episode on uh, Mac Power users. So I'll link that in the description below. That was a really fun chat with you guys. Um, but welcome to the show, and I'm so excited to chat with you about just podcasting in general. A podcast about podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> we just keep going one more meta. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was an episode of MPU where we talked a lot about PCs, which was which was fun for everybody. Which is interesting, right? I've definitely made that transition, uh, you know, over the past two years, and it's weird because uh, it's something where when you change, it's shocking, but now it doesn't seem different. Like now, it just seems like just like I'm using Mac OS, and then I go over to Mac OS, and I'm like, why doesn't it do this like Windows? Because <laughs> usually it's the opposite, right? Oh, well, we've lost you. That's too bad. <laughs> I know, it's too bad. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think that's a fun place to start with you, is kind of where did the the tech obsession and Apple, and because sure. you, you make a lot of great stuff about Apple. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so for me, it started in high school where I was on like the high school newspaper. I was really cool in school. Like, I know <laughs> it's hard to believe that now sitting in like a, a front of a wall of antique computers. But yeah, so in high school, I kind of met the Mac in the newspaper 
uh, program. And for a long time, I wanted to be a writer. And that's kind of where I started in college, went to college for a journalism degree. But at the high school and then later the college newspaper, I sort of learned the lesson that a computer is just a tool to create something, right? If I had this idea in my mind for uh, a layout or a design or an article or whatever it was, the computer was a set of tools to help me put that idea into the world. And I kind of feel like I've been chasing that idea ever since. That's awesome. And, you know, fast forward to now, Relay FM is this amazing podcast network with how many shows now? It's close to 30. Oh my gosh. It's so a, almost it's a lot. 30 <laughs> podcast shows. And so what was that first podcast? What year was it? What was sure. going through your brain and why podcasting? Because something I'm excited to talk about in this episode is where podcasting is out now. It's had its second, third boom, um, but it sounds like you were in it from the get-go. <laughs> Yeah, so really, Relay's history kind of starts many years before Relay. Mike Hurley, my co-founder, and I, we've actually been doing shows together since about 2011. And in 2013, we had the opportunity to kind of do the the couple shows he and I were doing just as a super side project to be able to take them to the 5x5 network. And in that process, we launched a show called The Prompt. It was myself, Mike Hurley, and then Federico Vitici. He lives in Rome. He's the editor-in-chief of a website called Mac Stories. And the three of us started this show talking about Apple. And and I'm sure I know you've experienced this in your career as well. Sometimes it's just the right idea at exactly the right time. And that show just simply exploded. And And that show is why we have Relay. It really showed us that there's something here in, in the content we're making. And it gave us sort of the uh, sort of the foundation to build upon and the prompt became connected, which was one of the launch shows just this week. We published episode 279 of that show and, and sort of, so the network kind of came out of this idea of like, okay, people like our content. We feel like we can build a business around it. And we ended up launching relay in the fall of 2014. What was happening in the world around the launch of that show? Why was that <laughs> so exciting for people to hear about Mac and Apple and because you yeah. said 2011, right? Uh, it, 2013 or was 2013. the beginning of the prompt. You know, I, I, I thought a lot about that. And I mean, the iPhone was sort of making its turn. That was, you know, the iPhone 5, 5S. So the iPhone was becoming mainstream and the iPad was kind of beginning to come into its own. But I think what we really hit upon was the relationship between the three of us just really worked. You know, I kind of describe it as... Um, Federico and I are, are opposite, usually at polar opposite ends, right? So he does all of his work on the iPad. I do all my work on the Mac. He is, you know, mobile and young and hip, and I'm none of those things. And and Mike very often was in the middle, and there was just something about that that really clicked. And we didn't plan that, you know, we didn't really really realize what was happening until about a year into it. like, oh, people respond to this, and so we kind of have leaned into it over the years. And it's just, you know, podcasting is so unique because you're listening to people for hours at a time. I mean, if you've listened to every episode of Connected, you've listened to us for like, I don't know, like 500 hours or something. That's a long, that's a relationship at that point. And that relationship just really clicked for, you know, sort of all those reasons. And, you know, I don't know if it was so much about where Apple was, but it was kind of about where we were at the time. Yeah. Um, you made a video recently rewatching the iPad keynote because it yeah. was the 10-year anniversary. <laughs> so exciting. Um, and it's it's interesting that it's been 10 years because I feel like 
it hasn't been 10 years. And with the recent update with iPad OS is the first time that I've really enjoyed the iPad. I mean, when I was in college, it was the go-to for note-taking because I don't know if you remember before the Apple Pencil, but you would get like these pins on Amazon that had the little uh, plastic <laughs> yeah. circle at the end. Yeah, <laughs> and it so was not good. It was not a good experience, but it was like the best experience then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was my only interaction with the iPad. Um, but recently it's gotten much more fun with iPad OS and, and really understanding how to use it. You kind of do feel like you're in the future when when you're swiping around things and um but what was do you remember obviously because you reacted to it but what was your first reaction when um when that ipad came out does it stand apart in your brain or maybe do any of the iphone launches stand apart mm. more i mean the 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 ipad when it first came out i mean i just remember watching that demo you know steve jobs is in a chair you know he's basically put his feet up on the table and like browsing the new york times and the, the original pitch for the iPad kind of was like, it's the internet in the palm of your hand. And I just remember being so impressed with his Steve's pitch of this is so much more intimate than a laptop, but so much more capable than an iPhone. I think they kind of nailed that. Now, my frustration with the iPad in the years since has been that's kind of been a promise unfulfilled, I think, until iPad OS, where the iPad has always lived in the iPhone shadow. And now it's kind of been given wings to kind of go out on its own. And I think the iPad OS story is obviously only beginning, but there's, there's always been this conflict within the iPad of it, it's rooted to the iPhone, but Apple, and especially like in the Tim Cook era, Hey, this is the future of personal computing. It's like, well, it can't be both, you know? And I think now they're finally willing to say, this is its own thing, distinct from the iPhone, distinct from the Mac. And I think that's really good for the iPad and its future. Yeah, it's crazy that it's taken a while for some of the apps to really take off. And I think people are seeing um, with content creation apps, oh, uh, now we can edit video on the iPad. And it's becoming something that people, I think, have envisioned for a while um, because I think a lot of people wanted that from the start. And yeah, we really, really didn't get that. In the beginning. Right. I mean, I mean, guys like Federico, you know, he runs his business on his iPad. He does a lot of writing. But until recently, the, the creative story hasn't been there. And you look at folks like what Jonathan Morrison is doing, you know, editing, you know, he did, he edited a video on the iPod Touch last year. It's like, you're a crazy person. But his point is that these tools are now here and the iPad has a long way to go to replace my Mac. I'm still very Mac-centric, Mac first. But every year that it's getting a little bit better, and that's what we want to see. The iPad felt like it was sort of stagnant for a long time. Right. Because you are Mac first, did you purchase the trash can when it came out years ago, or have you always been iMac? Uh, so I did not purchase a trash can. I've got one now. It was a gift from a friend. <laughs> um, it's not a very good computer. Was he, yeah. Was he like, uh, I don't need this anymore. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, this is just a doorstop. No. Um yeah, so I, I have for a long time was, you know, MacBook Pro, and then I built the studio when I went independent and used an iMac and then an iMac Pro for a long time, and then just in the last month uh, upgraded to a Mac Pro that I re- can't really justify, but um, I, uh, I I jumped on board with that. <laughs> so how long have you spent with a Mac Pro so far? Uh, it showed up at the very end of the year, and it's really a fantastic computer. You know, I can't really push. I mean, audio work is like not 
that difficult. And the video that I do is all pretty, pretty basic, but I love the expandability and I want, I like the idea of sort of having what my friend John Syracuse called the halo car, right? Like that's, it's sort of the, like no one needs the NSX. You want the NSX because you want like the best thing Honda and Acura can build. And there was definitely an element of that in it for me. Right. Has anything shocked you or like, what are those, those first impressions? Is it more of the like, it's more of like the guilty pleasure, like maybe I don't need it, but it looks great on my desk and it's, it makes work enjoyable or has anything been like, oh, that's neat. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I did was move all my external storage internal. And I know like the, the PC folks out there are just, uh, so I did the four, I did the four terabyte internal, but I've added now three, four terabyte SSDs and then a, a spinning hard drive for time machine backups. And those, those SSDs were just like scattered in cases across my desk. And I was like, this is messy. And it's really nice to be all internal. And yes, that's been a thing in the PC world since the dawn of time. And it used to be a thing in the Mac world too, until the trash can. But it's those little things where I've really enjoyed having everything in one enclosure. And it's, it's nice doing audio that it's completely silent. Like right now I'm recording on my MacBook Pro and I'm just like eyeballing the fan speed and like, don't make noise because that will make Sarah's life difficult in the future. Uh, but the Mac Pro and honestly the iMac Pro, they're completely silent under normal operation. And that's important to me as someone who produces hours of audio content each week. Right. Things that you don't think about when just doing video. I've I've honestly never thought about fan speed, but I do hear. Yeah, my XPS right now because I'm like yeah, recording okay. OBS and I'm like, is yeah. there fans fans going? Um, what is your like what attracts you to Apple and what has been a, uh, a frustration over the past year. So pick, pick your, your best pro and the worst con. Yeah. I mean, the, the best pro is, is just the integration with hardware and software that even though I'm a tech guy and I had a tech career for a long time, I just want to sit down and be able to make stuff. And I want to be able to trust that my devices in my life are just going to do what they're supposed to do. And, and that doesn't necessarily discount Windows, but it it with the Mac, I feel like I, I understand what it's going to do and that it's going to be very reliable and predictable, keyboard issues notwithstanding. We're just going to put, yeah. put the MacBook Pro keyboard aside. Um, that argument w- doesn't yeah, hold yeah. with the MacBook Pro of the yeah. past three years. <laughs> yeah, other than you know that tiny, that's a nightmare. That's yeah, a, that a terrible thing. issue. Uh, but my, my frustration is actually the flip side of that coin is that you have to do things the way that Apple wants you to do them. And that if you want to stay current, it means that you are accepting the decisions they make. So things like the removal of the head, headphone jack on the iPhone or with macOS Catalina last year, the death of 32 bit apps. Like if you had an app or a, a part of your workflow that depended on something that doesn't run in Catalina, you can't update to it. But if you buy a new Mac Pro, it's going to come with Catalina. So like, you you are always sort of forced along the road. And for a lot of people with professional workflows, that can be a big deal. I mean, how many pros do you and I both know who are still running, you know, Mojave or High Sierra or something because they have part of their chain that just won't work on newer systems? Like that's, there's good and bad there, but that can be really frustrating in a professional environment. Right. This is a good segue to Catalina because, you know, even though I am probably 70% Windows. Um, I do have an iMac at my apartment. Um, And 
Catalina has kind of been a nightmare. It's been so strange, like things, uh, like little things, and it's still not fixed. But I don't know if you have experience with this. But I'll save something to the desktop uh, or in the downloads folder. And then I'll go to Photoshop and I'll say open. And then I can't find it. Or I'll go to Google Drive and I'll say, you know, upload to Google Drive. And for some reason, Finder isn't finding that recent file that I just saved. And it's, it's something so major that I'm surprised it's not fixed yet. Like, because, you know, a lot of times I don't report things because I'm like, oh, this has to be an issue that other people are having. But I'm like, oh, maybe I need to report this. I mean, have you had any little things like that? I'm curious, have you had that specific problem? Uh, I haven't seen that specific issue, but Finder does seem a little rocky. Now, 1015.3 just came out and I haven't installed that yet because I usually get point updates uh, a little while. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe they fixed it uh, in point three, but there's definitely some roughness around the edges. And I think with Catalina, because they stripped out all the 32 bit stuff, I just have the, the feeling, I, I don't know this, but my gut says they've had to touch so much of the OS that there are some unintended consequences there. Uh, you know, you mentioned um, Photoshop, you know, Adobe was kind of late to the game for 64 bit support across the spectrum. And for this summer, you know, running the betas, I was like, are they going to be ready? Like, I mean, how many people run Photoshop on a daily basis? Right? I mean, it's, it's hundreds of millions of people. And like, you got to be ready to go because people are going to hit that button. And I so see yeah, there are those little, those little edges. And that's been a big complaint on the Apple side of things, not just on Mac OS, but iOS and iPad OS as well of like little details that seem to sort of fall through the cracks as Apple's gotten bigger. And that was where they really shined. Like when I started using them, yeah, and, you know, with the software, man, yeah. everything, like you said, just worked. Right. Right. Like in, when I was coming up and started using the Mac was during the OS 10 transition and like, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, and, you know, OS 10 was really rough for a while because it was new. And then they, they came into this era, like the iLife era, right? Like iPhoto and iMovie, all those apps are really flourishing. It's like top to bottom, everything was was solid, but everything was much simpler then. And as the systems have become more complex and there's things like iCloud have their fingers and everything now, it just seems like not, nothing necessarily huge is wrong, but there's lots of little edge cases that like, this isn't doing what I expect it to do, or this checkbox doesn't do what it says it'll do. And, and that can be frustrating. Right. Do you remember when people had to pay for updates to update oh, yeah. their software? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just remember that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I think whatever that lion or snow leopard, I remember mm-hmm. like paying for that. I, oh, I mean, yeah. was it like 20 bucks, 35 bucks? What was the... Yeah. So for, for a long time, like OS, uh, OS 10, like Jaguar, Panther, those were $129. And then I think with Snow Leopard, they went to 29 and then they went to 20 bucks and then it was free at some point. And now, you know, no one pays for software, right? But it, it used to be that, okay, I'm going to upgrade to Panther. So that's 129 bucks. Then I'm going to update to the new iLife. So that's another 79. Oh, iWork is new. That's a, it's like, it, see, it's such a different time. Exactly. And maybe you can touch on, you know, the oversubscription fatigue life that I think <laughs> a lot of people are feeling. However... Bringing that up, I feel like it's not that bad compared to what, maybe it's the fact that when you bought it, there's a sense of ownership, right? Um, but there's still that next year in two years, you know, one or two years, you're still going to have to buy software again. Maybe it's because you have the choice, but I almost feel like, 
I don't know, the fact that we're not paying for OS softwares and then, you know, the softwares that we really love that's part of our workflow. Yes, we pay monthly. Um, but are you feeling that subscription fatigue? I'm glad that we don't have to, you know, buy Jaguar for freaking $129. I mean, I think, yeah, that's better. <laughs> Yeah. Or, I mean, think about uh, going back to Adobe, right? You used to pay for 600 bucks, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, CS3's out and I got to like sell a kidney to upgrade. And so, I mean, there's trade-offs there. I definitely feel like everybody else. And as a lot of apps and services, especially on iOS, have moved to that model, it's an opportunity to say, is this tool or is this app or service really still meeting my needs or am I going to go elsewhere? And, you know, developers have moved to that because if you bought a calendar app, so Fantastical 3 just recently moved to subscription and they're getting a lot of heat for it because it was a paid app, one, one-time payment. But if I bought Fantastical 2 five years ago and I paid four bucks for it, they're still having to maintain it. And so this, the pitch is, if you subscribe, we're going to do updates and add services and it's going to be this thing. And I think the developers who are successful at it will be the ones who continue to improve. And so something like Overcast, which is a podcast player on iOS written by my friend Marco Arment, it is a it is free. You there's a, a subscription if you want it to unlock additional features. And for that, he's been able to update Overcast on a really regular basis. And he doesn't have to hold back updates for major point releases so people pay again. And that's cool that, you know, every six weeks Overcast gets a little bit better. But I'm willing to pay for that, and not everyone is. And so you have to make those decisions for yourself and see what apps and services you really rely on and what other ones maybe you could change. Right. Because I remember the the beginning argument with Adobe because they were really in – It's if you step back and think about it, like the fact that they had that foresight of what the industry is going to move to and the fact that they moved to it too soon is – interesting um and obviously it's doing well for them i mean they're just like raking in the cash right um but once you start to think about um apps like that and even though i wish they were a little bit more stable right i can't imagine a time where it was based on only one-time purchases and then in order to increase the revenue and, and the keep up you just have to keep finding new consumers, right? Because even for those calendar apps, the only way that they're going to make more money is if they find new customers. So it it is nice that, you know, with even though us on the consumer side, maybe we're a little bit tired, but the fact that, okay, maybe we're going to, we're going to be taken care of and this app isn't going to, it's going to hopefully be more stable. That's what we hope for, or like the, the new updates. Um, and so that's why I totally understand people's frustration when things are crashing and all that stuff. But I, I can't imagine how even Adobe was run on one-time purchases. Maybe I just can't even picture what that, that landscape was like 10, 15 years ago. Um, because I wasn't super, you know, I was young and didn't care necessarily about all the tech updates, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, it's interesting too because software in the the old system was like a, a, a physical product. So, like you know, this microphone I'm talking into, you know, I bought it from B and H. They ship it to my house, and I own it. Right, it's a one time payment, and I will use it hopefully for decades. But software or like digital goods, they they are different because they require ongoing support. Like B and H is not going to come and and update the capsule in this microphone or or resolder or something if there's some better soldering technology that comes down the road. But software can evolve and grow. And so it, I think it makes sense to a degree that 
you would pay for it on an ongoing basis. Now, it's up to the developers to prove that they're worthy of that money, right? Like Adobe, we're all chained to, so that is what it is. But, you know, there's lots of other good calendar apps. So Fantastical, just to use them as an example again, they got to prove that they're worth the $5 a month or whatever it is. I think or, it's harder for those smaller apps. Yeah. And especially if you're competing in a market where there's a free first party app like Calendar or Podcast or or something like that. So that you've got to prove that you're worth the money. And, and so moving to a subscription is sort of developers betting on themselves to say, yeah, we can continue to keep this up in a way that people will keep paying us. And you know, there's, uh, I've got a lot of friends who are software developers. I don't envy any of them because those are really hard decisions to make. And, and well, plus development seems like magic. Like if we can just be honest for a second, like, I don't know how software development works. It's like you, you type in your computer and app comes out. How does that work? Um, it beats me, but they, they've got to prove to their customers that they're worth the investment. And that means that not all of them are going to make it, but it gives the ones who do put the work in a reward for keep moving forward. Totally. Um, yeah, hopefully we we won't be paying $10 a month for every single app. Um, but I, I totally understand the value there. Um, talking about Relay FM. So it's, you know, the podcast network with almost 30 shows. Crazy. Uh, so take me back to that first show. You know, you said it's now connected. Um, and what was the evolution of that? And why did you want to expand into other podcasts? So, okay, it's going well. What was the first step? Did you hit up more friends that seemed like, were they doing stuff in other industries? Were they foreign to podcasts and you kind of had to rope them in? Um, what what was that first kind of like, okay, this needs to be more than one show? Yeah, so when we launched Relay in 2014, it was actually five shows connected with sort of the cornerstone. And the other shows had also been on 5 by 5 with people we had worked with before or sort of had worked with at 5 by 5 and and then one new show in analog with Mike and Casey Liss. That was the only kind of new show at launch in 2014. And we started with those five shows and I really honestly our vision was you know, if we can make a little money for our friends, that'd be great, but it'll be like a, a hobby type of thing. And very quickly we were proven wrong in that. Uh, a couple weeks into it, we got a note from Jason Snell, who had been the editorial director at Macworld and an IDG on, on the whole. And he was leaving IDG and he wanted to start a tech show, uh, which became Upgrade. And he brought Clockwise with him. And the network is like three weeks old at this point. And Jason Snell is like a huge name in our industry. I mean, I read Jason Snell in Macworld Magazine growing up. Like he was an idol <laughs> when I was younger and honestly still is. Don't tell him. Still look up to him a lot. Um, I would embarrass him now, I think. Um, but it, it became quickly apparent to us that we were building something that people wanted to be a part of. And and so Jason came on board with his couple of shows. And about a quarter into it, uh, my partner, Mike, decided that he could leave his job and, and go full time in Relay, which we had talked about maybe happening, but maybe like a year in. And at the time he wasn't married. I was married with um, two kids and our third was actually born the month after we started the company. And And Relay took no outside investments. Like we, Mike and I basically spent our life savings starting the company. Um, in hindsight, that is bananas timing. It's like, we're going to have a baby. I'm going to take all of the money we have in the bank and build a website for a podcast company. Like... <laughs> What could go Your wrong? Poor wife. <laughs> my, my wife is very forgiving. Um, and every good thing I have is because of her. And, 
And, and thankfully it panned out. And, you know, I I know so many people, I talk to so many people who are wanting to go independent with their creative work. And so many people are right on the bubble of it's not working now, but if I put full-time effort into it, I think it could work. And that's where we were very quickly with Mike. And we really saw the return that after he quit his job, he worked in finance at a big bank and, you know, he had some savings, thankfully he had some runway and, and when he was be able when he was able to put full time effort into selling the ads and producing his shows, that it really took off and we saw our first sort of big acceleration of growth really pretty quickly and we were able to you know pay ourselves back and and make money pretty quickly and it really kind of took off from there. Where were you guys finding those audiences? It, was it because you had certain people in these industries with already existent influence coming in, um, but then also for you know, you're in Mike's shows. How were you not just being stagnant? Because I feel like with podcasting, um, there's not as much organic reach as other platforms, right? Yeah, there's no YouTube algorithm like surfacing new content to you, right? And and that that is a really interesting problem about podcasting that we can get into. But for us, you know, Mike and I had a little bit of an audience through Five by Five, and and while we were there, the prompt grew so quickly. Can you talk that, a little bit about Five by Five? Sure. Yeah. yeah, so 5x5 is another podcast network uh, run by a guy named Dan Benjamin out of Austin, Texas. And at the time we joined it, he had a lot of sort of Apple tech-centric shows, and including with a lot of people we work with now. And there's no you know big mystery to, to sort of our relationship with them. We just kind of felt like we want to do this on our own terms and kind of steer the ship. And so we didn't leave 5x5 in rage. It was like, hey, you know, we feel like there's something here and we want to go out on our own. And he was extremely supportive of that, which is really awesome of Dan. And and it was uh, sort of a season of change for 5x5, and it sort of made sense for our tech stuff to kind of go elsewhere. And, and it all really panned out well for everybody. But a lot of our growth over the years has been working with people with big audiences. So like Jason Snell is a really well-known name in sort of the Mac community. Federico Vitici, really well-known in the iOS community. And you fast forward a few years, you know, we started a show with CGP Gray. The, the, he's got an educational YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah, Gray's awesome. And and so, you know, he could pull from his existing audience and guys like Merlin Mann and John Syracuse, people who are big names in the Apple community, bringing their expertise and their their audiences. So we try to partner those people with a host who can kind of work with them. Maybe they're new to podcasting and maybe they have limited experience and kind of get their expertise and knowledge into the podcast format. And that's been a really successful recipe for us over the years. Mid-roll time. How exciting. That Creative Life, sponsored by B&H. B&Hphoto.com is where you get all of your gear, where I get all of my gear. So let's talk specifics. What I'm recording with right now is usually my go-to setup, not just for traveling, um, but a lot of times when I'm in the office because these mics are just so good. So I use the Shure Beta 58 a, if you're familiar with the mics that people use all the time for live performances, it's very similar to the Shure 58s, but it has a little bit more gain right out the bat so you don't actually have to use a preamp of any sort. So I plug my 58A straight into my Zoom H6 via 
an XLR and I record onto an SD and guys, that's literally the entire podcast setup that I use. And what's so great about the H6 is you can plug up to four mics into it. And then it also has the ability for phantom power if you need it for condenser mics. So my B&H links will obviously be in the show notes below. Um, and I, I think you see these fancy mics that we are going to go down that rabbit hole, maybe in the next podcast where they're getting upwards of 400, 500, but this setup is definitely on the more affordable side and it just sounds great. I'm recording on it right now. And some of the best audio advice that I've ever gotten from professionals is, hey, before you worry about equipment, just worry about what type of room that you're in. If you're in a big echoey room without any soft things around you, hey, it doesn't matter what mic you have, it's not gonna sound good. Um, so I think this is a really good starting point and then you can start thinking about what type of room you're in and boom, your audio is amazing and you're ready to get your podcast life on the roll. So again, BH links down in the show notes below and let's keep it a moving with Stephen Hackett. I definitely want to circle back to workflow and everything that it takes to run Relay FM, but um, I, I would like to briefly talk about the different apps that are out there, this wave of podcasting where it seems like, oh, everyone's starting a podcast, right? Um, and it's it's one of those things that's interesting because just like you said, it doesn't have that same algorithm as YouTube that's continually surfacing uh, new content. So um, to the point of what you've been doing since the beginning, you kind of have to have influence in other areas of the internet, right? Um, but what do you see as, do you, do you see that problem? It's not necessarily a problem, but do you see that ever being fixed through an app, through a curator, through anything, or is it is what makes podcasting good? Is it the fact that it is just that simple RSS feed and it goes everywhere? People can listen wherever they want to listen. Um, and then maybe Apple Podcasts is where people find new podcasts to listen to. But it seems like we're a part of our routine. Like I'm in Apple Podcasts, even though it's a hideous app. Um, it's where I'm most comfy, right? It's like where my shows are. I have maybe like six that I circulate in between and that's it. I, I really don't listen to new. One. It takes, it takes a lot of energy for me to get into a new podcast. Basically. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's an interesting format challenge. I mean, a lot of the, the companies that have gotten into this over the last couple of years are trying to solve this problem of, Hey, if we curate something, if we build an app, if we collect a lot of data about you, then we can recommend new content to you. And uh, you see Spotify doing that right now. Spotify spent millions of dollars in the last couple of years buying po podcast content companies. And now they are leveraging all the information they have about you, your Spotify account to, to match you with shows and going to match advertising yeah. and all that stuff. I didn't think about that. When they bought Gimlet, they bought data too. Oh yeah. 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 And, and, <laughs> and podcast. So like, so like relay, for instance, you know, we're kind of an old fashioned company in our space now where it's just RSS. You can take our feed and put in any app you want. Um, it's what some people have termed like open web podcasting. I don't really like that term because I think it has other connotations, but we're just RSS feeds, right? Like that's all that we generate. And you can listen to them anywhere you want. You can plug the RSS feed in or you can search for us and, and we're already there. What these other companies are, are trying to do with pretty limited success is marry like, okay, we have content that's specific to our platform. You can add in, you know, podcasts from the web and kind of mix it all together. And if you're in their app, if they control the whole experience, 
then they can begin to learn about you and through dynamic ad insertion, play ads for you that meet your demographic information or location information or something like that. And time will tell how successful that is. So far, it hasn't been real successful because people like the podcast client they're already using. People don't want to pay for podcast or a podcast app. You know, something like Luminary, they just had a big price cut, you know, for their service because they don't, they're not good. They're not growing. Did they start at $9.99? Oh, they started at? I think they Because now they're did. at four ninety nine, dollars which is they, still... It's a lot. Like, even as someone who just started consuming podcasts maybe three years ago, I would probably be, you know, the the newer consumer that they're aiming for. But even me, I'm like, oh, there's no way. Like, there's no way I would pay $5 a month for exclusive podcasts where it's like, I already got the people I listen to. I love them. And like, you, you have to have that initial, they haven't had the hit yet, right? Right. And it, what I keep thinking about is what happens if, you know, Spotify through Gimlet Media or, or, you know, some other content company they've built, what happens when they do have a hit? You know, what happens when the next serial or the next S-Town is in one of those gardens? And I would argue that that's probably actually not super possible because to have a hit, you've got to be accessible to a lot of people. And if you're not accessible to a lot of people, you can't have a hit, right? There's, there's a chicken and egg there that I don't know if anyone has solved yet. But the way we view it is, you know, we have a very successful business. It's profitable. It grows every every year. And we do that and we don't know anything about our listeners, right? We know basically where you are in the world, you know, by your IP address. And that's it. You know, we don't we don't know that you live in New York and, you know, that you are interested in these things. And so we can funnel in and add about a new camera to you because, A, I've watched your channel for a long time. I know a camera ad would be very influential to you because you have a problem with new cameras. Um, but we don't do that because we that's not the sort of business we want to be in. And the other model hasn't proven to be successful yet. You know, all the successful podcasts out there for the most part, are built the way that we're built. Even if you look at something like uh, like our friends at Earwolf, I'm listening to the Office Ladies podcast, which oh, is... Oh, it's so good. I, 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 I love it. <laughs> every Wednesday morning in the gym, that's what I'm listening to. Yeah. And they're doing... Um, it sounds to my ear like they're doing some dynamic ad insertion, but they're doing it in a way that's over RSS. So it's not targeted to me necessarily, but they can change out their back catalog of ads and that sort of thing. And so maybe that's the middle ground, but it's still really early days. And the only business model that's really been proven successful is ours. And so we don't feel pressure to run out and build an app and and put a, a garden around the relay shows because the relay shows are really successful without all that junk. So many points I want to. I know. Sorry, I, to, I, I, I but get fired up. No, no, yeah. Um, so the dynamic ad insertion for the people who aren't aware, can you kind of explain what that is? Because it is weird when when you start. Because uh, you know I like Gimlet podcasts, and sometimes I'll go back and like re-listen to some of the startup episodes. Um, and it was funny because I went back to the first season, and it's like, oh wait, this is the same exact ad that was just playing on one of their recent podcasts. Like, interesting. What is the, is that only accessible to these big networks through like pri uh, proprietary tech or how does that even happen? Because, you know, us or me, who's just uploading via uh, Simplecast, which I'm a big fan of um, Simplecast and Brad, um, that I'm just uploading everything as one episode. And if there's ads, it's baked into the audio 
but that's not what a lot of these big podcasts are doing. Yeah. So usually what the, how this works is they, they record the shows and they add separately and the tell normally is music before and after the ad break. Cause that's how they find. So, um, uh, I, I've, I've, poked fun to my friends at Vox for this over the years, because sometimes you hear the Verge cast and they have this like funny music sound effect. Then there's an ad and the closing sound effect is the same clip played backwards, which I just, like, I, I love the humor in that. But on occasion, you'll hear the start of it and the end of it with no ad in between. And so they, they didn't sell that spot or the ad wasn't inserted. And so like, so yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of the that's tell. How, that's how the office ladies They've were had in it the too. first few episodes. Cause yeah. I'm like, okay, is this being really smart and basically getting their audience to get used to an ad break going yeah, here? I don't know. Or, <laughs> or did someone yeah, miss it? It's Who knows? so strange. Yeah. Um, so, so how, how it's working is they, they have a, um, most of the time there's their software that can handle this for you, or it's even dynamically done for you where you, the ads are inserted into the, the file basically on its way out the door. And so a show like, and I, this is pure speculation, say like the office ladies, I would imagine their back catalog would be very successful, right? That someone's going to, A, that podcast is going to last for years because th- there's a lot of office episodes to talk about, but two, people are going to find it and want to listen to all of them. And so they can go to their advertisers and say, Hey, it's this price to be on the episode when it airs. But if you want an episode that's been on the shelf for six months, it's this lower price. Well, you're being able to sell it twice at that point where the way you work and the way we work is we go to a sponsor and they the buy the ad. They have, yeah. yeah. They buy well, the I ad guess, one time and it's there forever. Right. I guess you can say that's of value too. Even if you don't, you can act like you have that dynamic ad insertion and you can use that to barter. You can be like, listen, here, you're going to have the ad, you know, for the first month. But if you want it in perpetuity, you're going to have to pay me more money because right. I have this fancy ad insertion. Right. Thing. And, and, you know, some people are dabbling with that. And, you know, we have a couple of, of podcasts that have really successful back catalogs and, you know, we, we've looked at it, but uh, where it gets tricky is to make dynamic ad insertion really worth it. Um, you know, it does take work and you have to factor that into the cost and you got to deal with the software and you got to deal with the quality issues, right? Where sometimes things don't line up or it, if you use chapters, like we do in a lot of our shows, the ads have to be the exact same length or you break the chapter markers. Like there's lots of follow on effects that for us, it hasn't been worth it yet. Um, and if you're just selling back catalog, I really don't have a problem with that. Where I run into sort of issues philosophically is if you're doing it in a closed platform where the dynamic ads are inserted because you know a lot about me, then it feels like a different thing. And to our audience, there's not really a line there with, I feel like a lot of our audience would maybe feel kind of weird about it and think that we are doing more tracking than we are, than we even can because we are using that technology. So it's sort of a, a hot potato in our corner of the internet. Cause the reality is like RSS podcasting, what, like what you do and what I do there's there's no tracking. You know, RSS is a really dumb technology, which is one reason I love it so much. Like, it's just a feed, right? There's no there's nothing else going on, and there's so simplicity in that. These these companies like Earwolf, they I mean they are on all these same platforms right. that we're on, but you're saying they're just using a different distributor that via that distributor via their Simplecast, whatever it is, it's that software that's capturing uh, more of the information about their listeners. Well, they're. Um, 
if they're if you're just listening to like Office Ladies via RSS, there there's no tracking that they can't do. Right. Um, if you are listening to it in an app that they control that you're logging in with, gotcha. that that sort of the line. So you can do dynamic ad insertion just to sell your back catalog, just to so bill a right. second so sponsor. It's, so it's almost up to the apps that we're listening to. It's up right. to Apple Podcasts, Overcast. Right. Okay, so yeah. they kind of control that. Right, and and without a login, there's really nothing that they could do. So say that that Overcast would want to start tracking listeners, and Marco has a very good, well-reasoned, thought-out privacy policy, and Marco would never do this. I'm picking on him because I know him. Um, if Marco, say Marco's evil twin took over Overcast, you know, it's Marco, but with a goatee and, you know, evil Marco, and he wanted to start tracking his listeners. There's really not much he even could do because RSS is so simple. And so there's, there's, because RSS comes from an old version of the internet, right? It's so basic. That's why you see these companies like Luminary building their own player. And it's why you see Spotify bringing people into the Spotify app, because once you're in their app with an account, and information that's where the tracking is taking place it's it's really once you're in their their walled garden and if you're just out in the rss ecosystem an apple podcast or pocket cast or overcast or whatever then you're sort of separated and insulated from all that other tracking that's interesting and this is the last question i'll ask about <laughs> dynamic ad insertion yeah, we've lost <laughs> everybody so we're talking about the rss <laughs> I know. everyone's gone <laughs> I know. <laughs> Goodbye, all. Make sure to subscribe to so both sorry. of us. <laughs> um, but I am curious, is it something that you have to have as you're uploading the episodes or can you like figure out that software that does the dynamic ad insertion and you can you go back into your past episodes and basically, is that what you're saying in terms of it might be a little bit messier because you would be adding a dynamic ad in a podcast that wasn't like, there's no five seconds of silence. So it might get a little messy. Right. And, and, you know, we haven't, like, I haven't played with many of these tools in a while. And so, and a lot of them are proprietary to, you know, maybe they've built their own or have their own workflow for it. Uh, a lot of shows that are doing it kind of pick a, a point and do it forward, you know, Hey, you know, say we're going to start dynamic answers on episode 100. We're not going to worry about 99 and below because we don't want to go back into those MP3s. But moving forward, you can build it into your workflow to to insert them as you go. And, you know, there is more overhead, right? Because you've got to manage all that stuff and you have the, the ad inventory tracking is way more complicated and you have more sales processes and everything. You have to make sure it's all worth it. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of shows that I listen to that I've noticed moving over to it, it seems like they're just picking a point in time and just doing gotcha. it moving forward. Yeah. Cause I wonder what that, the complexity of the sales of that is, Oh, when Gimlet's putting their most recent ads on all of their shows, right? Well, what does that mean for the original ad that they sold for that show? You know, they're, they're having to worry about uh, licensing it out for a certain amount of time periods. Oh, you only get this for a month. And then, but then, those same ad people you're probably also selling dynamic <laughs> right. ads to. Right. So it's like, you're right. I mean, you have to think about the the grunt work yeah. that goes into managing that. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of overhead. And for a company our size, you know, it's, it's Mike and I, and then we have a sales manager who works part-time and we have sort of an administrative person that works part-time and we have freelance editors and stuff, but like we're a very small company and you've got to be the size of, you know, Earwolf or Gimlet or somebody to, to manage all that stuff. And if you're that size, then you also need to bill more. So you can't be that size, right? It's the chicken and egg thing, right? It's like, 
you know, Relay is a lot smaller than those companies, but Mike and I make a comfortable living because we've kept it simple and we've kept it small and we can pay host on 30 shows, you know, good money in most cases because we have a system that works for us. And so, you know, like, again, we don't look at that and feel, feel immediate pressure. We're always keeping an eye on it, right? If there's a big swing in the industry and it's dynamic ad insertion or bust, then like, yeah, we're probably going to do it. But the industry is nowhere close to that yet because, again, none of it's really been proven to be hugely successful, especially in the market our size. You know, at our size, we, we have personal relations with all of our sponsors, you know, just like you do, right? You know who you're working with and it's about the relationships. It's the same way for us. We don't have to operate at that bigger level because we're not at that bigger level. Right. Let's talk about uh, brand partnerships. And um, I feel like there's definitely two ways to go about it with podcasting because it is such a, I would, it's, it's matured, right? I mean, there are certain companies that know how to do podcast sponsorships and they only go by the CPMs and it's that or bust. Um, and then I found also within being in the YouTube space, a lot of these YouTube creators have um, already existing relationships with brands on the YouTube platform. And the moment you try to bring maybe a classic, like a Squarespace over to the podcasting space, they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Squarespace does so much advertising that the same team that's doing YouTube is not nowhere close to the podcast team. So it's, yeah, it's interesting to, um, you know, there's big differences between the companies that are kind of like, I wouldn't say spray or spray and pray because um, I think Squarespace and those people are very thoughtful of who they partner with. Um, yeah, but they're, they're still... I would say um, they're the type of brand that is kind of everywhere within podcasting. And um, because of that, they they very strictly go by the CPMs, right? And what the market what the market says you should be paying for podcasts. And then what I've been finding and also what I've been doing with my audience um, is, you know, there's, there's brands that I have a deeper relationship with. And you can kind of go to them and say, hey, like you don't know a lot about podcast sponsorships. And honestly, the CPMs that I'm getting from these brands are just not attractive to me at all. Like if they want my biggest 15,000, 20,000 fans that are listening to my podcast, like I just don't think it's worth selling out to the prices they're giving me. Um, so how can you come along? And for example, it's like BNH. We're talking about them earlier. I have a close relationship with them. So it's like, how can you guys come along, sponsor the podcast, but also how can we extend that to other things? You know, um, with that, there's more work, there's more, um, decks you have to make there. There's more of a, uh, environment that you have to provide for them with Twitter and Instagram to make the deal a little sweeter. Um, but it's just interesting because it has been so set in stone for a while, I think, with CPMs um, to see now YouTube creators and, and people from the outside coming in and saying, kind of bringing in some random brands, you know, who might not know about podcasts and figuring out how to sponsor them on like a more deeper level. Um, that was just that's not a question, but a note. But my question to you is how has the pot, the sponsorships and working with brands, has that evolved over the past five years? Is it on a, uh, has it just been on a tight schedule where that's the benefit of podcast sponsorships is there's just, there's a, uh, everyone knows what they're going to get, right? The fact that it fits into a bucket, it's this price. And so maybe you don't have to think about it as much. Is that kind of like the the great thing about po podcast sponsorships really? Yeah. How has it evolved? What is your, uh, process on that? You guys usually have about, uh, like three brands per podcast, I would say. 
Three or yeah, four? so we aim for an ad every 20 to 30 minutes of content and usually closer to the 30. And, you know, we've got a lot of shows that are, are not big enough for sponsorship or, or they have some ads because somebody like a Squarespace buys a lot from us and we can slot in smaller shows as part of that deal. But uh, it's it's changed a little bit. So in the beginning, a lot of our sponsors were what you, where you heard, you know, everywhere else. So Squarespace, Hover, Igloo, you know, those companies that were really in the game five years ago. But as we've gotten bigger, and those those sponsors are still very important to us, like Squarespace is still one of our biggest customers. But we also have a lot of companies that, you know, maybe were their first podcast experience because they're in our space. They want to reach our audience of people who are into Apple and tech. And uh, that's a very good, like, well understood group of people from an advertising perspective. And so there are, are a lot of companies that we sort of help them along the process of, hey, they want to get into podcast sponsorship. They contact us, we contact them. We kind of walk them through that. It is very CPM based. We don't have, a, we don't really have any sort of what I think about is the YouTube model of like partnership. You know, it's these are the ads, these are the episodes, this is the CPM. This is the supply and demand, and it is very numbers driven. But at the same time, it's really important us to be relational with those people. And so if it's, you know, a big company, if it's an agency, we have sponsors that are like independent developers. You know, we we spend time with all of them because we think it's really important that we're all pulling in the same direction. And, you know, we don't have any sponsors like, you know, we don't offer, you know, content approval to sponsors. They don't get to see what we're going to be talking about in any given episode. They don't get to hear it before anybody else. Now they get, a lot of them get air checks where they hear, you know, they all get timestamps of, Hey, this is where the ad showed up. Some of them get air checks, but it is not a deal where, you know, they get any, any sort of, um, there's no partnership stuff. There, there's nothing like that. And a part of that is sort of my background, having gone to journalism school where like content and advertising are like separate things right. in my mind and, in YouTube, and it's blurred so much <laughs> it is yeah. and and even in in you know what's left of the blogging world that i still uh, play in as well like there's there's some of that sort of muddied waters but we treat them as really separate things and you know sometimes that means that, like if we have a sponsor who you know maybe they're in the news because something we try to cover it objectively or or um you know try to I mean, I don't have a good example of this, but say that a spo- say that a sponsor was in the news. Say that you know Squarespace was in the news for having you know bought somebody. Well, we would try to do our best to make sure they weren't on the show that we're talking about them. Not because they'd have a problem with it. It's like that's weird to the audience. Um, but we we it is very a CPM driven business in podcasting, and and these CPMs are very good. They're they're um, they're way better than they are in display web advertising, right? That's oh, yeah. all dead. Well, that's, dead. Yeah. that's all dead, <laughs> right? Like, it's better than that. <laughs> um, you know, that's that's fractions of pennies on the dollar compared to podcasting. And and we've been able to find success in that model. And, you know, most of our sponsors are, are longtime sponsors. There are very few companies, big sponsors we've had that have left us. And if they do, it's because they were bought by somebody or their market changed. We've never had anybody leave because they were you know, deeply unhappy with, with how we treated them or or how their ads worked. You know, Squarespace comes back year after year because it's effective. If it wasn't effective, they wouldn't spend the money with us or with you or with anybody else. And so listeners, sometimes, you know, we hear like, oh, I've heard this ad over and over. It's like, yeah, because it works for them. Yeah. And, well, and some you t- know, sometimes it takes seven ads from Squarespace for you to be like, oh, 
I am ready to build a yeah. website, right? It, it does take right. a few for it to click. Right. Which is why a lot of our stuff is call and response. So it's, hey, use this offer code, go to this URL, because then Squarespace knows, oh, that person came from Connected or that person came from Cortex or that person came from Sarah. And and that's how they're tracking it. Again, because to the previous conversation, there's not all those metrics, right? Like if you're on the web and you click on an ad, like someone's analytics package knows everything all of a sudden, right? And, and that's not true. If you just listen to a URL on the subway and then you go to your computer three weeks later to build a website and, you know, do squarespace.com slash whatever, like the only link is that URL. And and so it's it's a very simple model. And it means that a company our size can manage the portfolio that we do because there's not a ton of moving parts. Let's talk about analytics because recently in the podcast world, um, it was a little shooken a little bit with IAB analytics and in terms of now the industry, which I think is a very healthy shift. It's not just about downloads and those episodes sitting on someone's phone, but it's it's about someone clicking into the episode and actually listening to it, right? It's it's more about listens instead of downloads. Um, but with that, with any, because it's with good intentions, right? With any industry growing, um, people want to make sure that the analytics that they're using are, um, they're reflecting people actually listening and engaging with the content. Um, but then that also means that these different platforms have to opt into it. So it is still a little bit weird because um, certain platforms like Anchor, they were concerned about, they just want numbers to sell to someone. So they're not using IAV. IAB analytics. They just want numbers, right? Um, and then Simplecast, when they they want to be, um, you know, like a, a credible platform, so they they incorporated it, but they had to do a lot of, hey guys, so your numbers are probably going to go down. Don't freak out. And there was a moment where people's numbers were down, right? Um, and so when whenever there's a certain amount of standardization engagement is what you sell for and that kind of hurts people and they're in the long run it's not going to hurt people um but temporarily it was kind of like oh my gosh my numbers went down right um do you have any insight on the kind of that recent change with IAB and um I mean what what hosting platform do you guys use yeah so we use Lipson which is a huge platform if people aren't aren't aware Lipson is (laughs) Yeah, they've been around since the beginning almost. And Lipson is mostly a backend. So like we have our own custom CMS that we built and continue to develop on. So Lipson is just the backend for us. Um, they do have a front end, but most people use it the way we do. And Lipson switched to IAB whenever it was, a year and a half ago, or I don't know, time is a flat circle. Um, and yeah, so there were adjustments in the numbers. And you know, no system is perfect. I think IAB probably isn't perfect. But if everyone agrees to the same imperfect system, then it kind of doesn't matter if it's perfect or not, because everyone's on the same playing field. And it was when we started, you know, Lipson numbers would report one thing, but then if we ran it through something else, they'd be like pretty different. It's like, okay, well, who's right? And you just didn't know. And again, because like an RSS feed that delivers an MP3 file, it's so simple, like okay, well, you downloaded it on your phone and your iPad. Is that two downloads? Is it just one? IAB tries to address that by looking at time windows and IP addresses. And like, you know, for me, I've got an iPhone and iPad and a couple of computers, right? So like if I download it four times, I'm not four people. I'm, I'm one person. IAB tries to distill that. And again, 
no system's going to be perfect. But but with that, you have the to industry, collect more data, right? Right, right. Which you know we don't want to do, and we can't do because of the technology anyway. So the the IAB and people moving to that has leveled the playing field a bit, and I think ultimately that's probably a good thing, even if the numbers aren't perfect. If if everyone's you know, speaking the same language and that's, that's, that's good enough. And, you know, everyone saw adjustment with IAB. We, we know we did like everybody else, but um, I, th- I think Lipson stats where they were, were already really good. And so, you know, some people saw big drop-offs using other platforms. Ours, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really that big of an adjustment, but um, you know, IAB is here to stay if you're in the podcasting world and you know, that's, that's fine by us. Yeah. Let's talk about since, uh, oh yeah. And one other note, that is kind of just clicking with me, which I feel silly, but um, the the fact that a podcast network is, you know, you have these like-minded uh, podcasts and you have fans that then can go from one show to the other. And um, that is so much more effective when it comes to selling sponsorships because, you know, maybe like you said, a smaller show doesn't have the the amount of listeners that can go and get their own sponsorship, but you're able to kind of divvy, divvy that up and offer to a Squarespace, hey, I'm not just selling a show with 20,000 listens, but it's more about 30 shows with this huge number yeah. of listens and that's more attractive right. to sponsorships, right? Yeah. And in the beginning, we did a lot of like universal sales, like buy everything right. on the network. Right. We don't do a lot of that, but our big sponsors do buy a selection of shows at once. But there's also a sort of the flip side of that is like, if you look at our branding, like relay branding is very strong, it's very distinct. And so we want people if they're browsing an Apple podcast to like, oh, this is a relay show. I recognize the artwork, I recognize the style. We want them to say, okay, well, I know these other shows on relay and they're all good. And so I bet this one's going to be good too, right? We we want to have uh, that sort of familiar uh, look and feel and sound to everything. And so... Yeah, like that's why we don't work with everybody, right? We could we could have three times, four times the number of shows we have if we wanted them, because like we get pitches every day. But we really only start the projects we feel like fit with the overall picture of what Relay is doing. And we have some stuff later this year that I think will will prove that out even more. But it is important to us that Relay stands for something and quality and in, in terms of what people expect. And that's, you know, another way that someone, you know, maybe one of the smaller shows on the network can grow or at the very least gain attention that maybe it wouldn't if it was just out on its own. Because podcasts are a uh, there's there's kind of some smoke and mirrors to, um, you know, the selling ads and all that stuff. So thank you for sharing about it. Um, But I, I think because of that, a lot of shows figure out that, oh, it's going to be way more likely to sell ads if I go with a network, right? Um, and that's why networks are so attractive. What would you say, um, could you put a number to like an average amount of listens that a network would even consider a show for? Hmm. No, it's hard. In the in the tech sphere, it's hard to advertise on shows that are smaller than maybe, I don't know, fifteen to 20,000 downloads an episode. Um, that doesn't mean it's impossible, but that's really where it gets a lot easier. We have shows that are smaller than that that advertise. Um, you know, But I think the bigger issue, the numbers, is being in a content area that sponsors are in. And so we're pretty much just in tech. And you know, we've looked at branching out into other areas. Like, so we have a show on the network called The Pen Addict about fountain pens and stationery and stuff, which is like a whole other brand of nerdiness. It's but like a niche inside a niche. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> way down the rabbit hole. 
But that show sells pretty well because that industry, like those companies want to advertise and there's not a lot of outlets for them. And so Brad and Mike, who are on that show, like it's sold out because those pen companies, even though it's not a huge show, those pen companies want that audience. And so if you can find the brands or the, the companies in your sphere, you may not have to be that big if you can offer something that they can't get anywhere else. Right. And so that is sort of the other, the other piece of it. If, you know, if you're going to start a tech show, there's a lot of, a lot of people in the room already, but if you can find an area that you can offer something to advertisers, you don't have to necessarily be that big to start selling. Right. Um, to wrap things up, I think it'd be interesting to hear in terms of, because we're all gearheads over here, you know, sure. um, what, what you, not just you personally use for gear, but as you bring in new shows, I'm sure that a lot of people are like, oh, Hey, Steve and Mike, you guys know what you're doing. Like yeah. what, what should be my workflow? Um, and so what, yeah. what's some advice that you give to people from the start to finish in terms of, uh, yeah. distribution, the preamps that you're using the mic, um, and yeah. then also where do you edit your podcast in? It's mostly just a lot of crying and screaming, running in circles. <laughs> exactly. Um, talking about gear, uh, just as a sign, my light is slowly dying, so I just feel like I'm descending into darkness here. So I apologize. I know, luckily it just happened at the end because I literally yeah. have like construction workers outside yeah. now just like grinding something. Yeah. So we started good, <laughs> we we're ending in a, it's a disaster. Exactly. I don't do much video, you know, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, we get that question a lot. And the reality is that you can start... Um, you know, pretty simple. And so my sort of like favorite setup for, for most people, if you're willing to spend some money, uh, I really love the Shure Beta 87A. It's a microphone. It's usually a couple hundred bucks. You can get it discounted. You know, it goes on sale all the time. Um, I think it does a great job at, you know, background isolation and just the quality is really nice. It's an XLR microphone. So you need some sort of device to basically adapt that from XLR to USB. So, you know, some sort of preamp or, or some sort of, um, you know, breakout box or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Zoom H6, actually what I'm using right now. And it's really flexible too, because you can use it for field recording and lots of other stuff. It's a multi-track deal. So you can run multiple microphones into it. If you're, say your podcast is four people in a room where you can do it just with one, with one device and it works to SD card or over USB. Um, I use, you know, higher end stuff than that, but I think that's a really nice place to start. You're going to spend, you know, maybe three or 400 bucks, but you can start way less than that as well. So, you know, sort of the go-to for a lot of people is like the, the Yeti USB microphone. Uh, I don't love that microphone because it has a tendency to be, um, very bad with background noise and it's like a multi setup deal. So it can record in front of you and behind you. And if you get that wrong, it's like you and then your laptop. Um, there, uh, there's, uh, there's a mic. Um, I forget the model number. I'll, I'll look at them and send it to you. But it's, it's, uh, it's the ATR something. It's like a hundred bucks, and it's USB and XLR. And it's not great, but if you want to only spend a hundred bucks, it's a great yeah. place to start. Better than the Yeti, I think. Yeah, amazing. And then, where do you edit your shows on? Yeah, so uh, I edit in Logic. Um, so I record in a Mac app called Audio Hijack. And uh, we record over Skype, just audio, not, usually not video. And we also use uh, Ecamm's call recorder because it will record my local track and your Skype track separately. So if you lost your recording, I still have a copy of it. But our goal is always to edit together local recordings. So you should never hear the Skype call. Uh, Skype calls have artifacting and you sound like a robot. 
And so uh, I edit in Logic. That's what most people on the the network who edit edit in. Some people edit in Audition. We don't really have a a standard people because we don't edit all the shows. A lot of people edit their own right. shows, or we have a freelance editor who does all of his work in Audition. Do you, do you have a favorite audio plugin or something that maybe is hmm. like great at leveling audio or taking out his? Yeah. Yeah, so I really recommend uh, a suite of tools called Isotope. Uh, I think RX6 is the current version. It does noise reduction, get rid of fan noise, get rid of clicks and pops, and you can merge all those tools together. So it's a standalone app, but it also donates audio audio plugins to Logic or Final Cut or Audition. So you can do it in line with your edit as opposed to pre-processing. It's, it's really helpful. I think there's something said to have something portable and something you use at your desk. Like at my desk, I use the USB Pre 2, which yeah. has really great preamps in it. It's a box covered in knobs. It's great. There's no drivers. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's perfect. Gotta love that. Um, and then I use the Neumann KMS 105 as my microphone. Neumann. Um, it's, uh, it's a, it was an investment. Yeah. And again, it's a microphone I will use for being from, hopefully decades yeah, to come being from the music world you hear that and you're like oh oh it's fancy oh. like even the box is like this is the <laughs> nicest microphone box i've ever opened yeah well, um, you but you better, don't need that yeah. stuff my point is you can start you know you don't need a a, a 900 interface and a yeah. 700 microphone to get started Definitely. like please don't spend that money getting started <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well steven thank you so much for being on that creative life and and what are some shows that you're most excited about over at relay that people can go and listen to Oh, man. Uh, Cortex with Mike and CGP Grey is just on fire right now. They do this thing about yearly themes because uh, resolutions are dumb and you shouldn't have them. <laughs> themes are good and you should have them. Uh, they're really kind of firing on all cylinders. There's a new episode out here pretty recently. Um, you can catch me on Mac Power Users with David Sparks. We talk about Apple workflows and, and that sort of thing. We have an interview coming up with a guy who runs an observatory from an iMac uh, with like oh, legitimate wow. space telescope. So that, that's exciting. Um and yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff over at uh, relay.fm. You can find something that you like, I'm sure. Amazing. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening, Stephen. Thank you so much for being on. I'll make sure to put all of your links in the description below as well on the Twitter. Go say hi to cool. him on the Twitter, guys. Um, I feel like that's where I keep up with most of my internet friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm at ISMH over there. Amazing. Um, Stephen, thank you so much, guys. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next Monday, thank you for listening. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast with Stephen. It was such a pleasure. Make sure to stick around for my That Creative Life Q&A at the end where I answer three questions from you. Just tag in hashtag That Creative Life. Thank you, B&H, so much for sponsoring this podcast. I am so excited about this because they enable a lot of what I do on YouTube and just living in New York City and helping out with loaning out gear to review. Um, so this is kind of exciting for me to have these mini reviews within the podcast to maybe satiate any questions that you have about gear, photo, video and audio. It's taken me a long time to figure out um, really my audio setup. So hopefully I can make that easy for you by just linking everything down in the show notes below. And you know, BNH is so great about really supporting the community here in New York with other creators. So it's an honor. And if you're ever in New York, again, their superstore is insane. They literally have a system where you pick out your gear, they make a note of it, and they have a system on the ceiling of bins where your gear is delivered to you downstairs. And I'm not explaining it very well via audio, uh, but it's just an experience in itself. So if you guys want the 411 on any piece of gear, let me know. 
tweet at me. Tweet BNH. Show them some love because we love them over here at That Creative Life. So thank you, BNH, for sponsoring this podcast. Okay, time to go into this Q&A. Rapid fire. Three questions. Here we go. The first one isn't even a question. We're just going to change it up a bit because I loved it so much. From at Jacob Rand Holmes, he said, thought you would like this quote. To achieve great things, two things are needed. A plan and not quite enough time by Leonard Bernstein. I think oh, that is, there is so much truth in that. I'm not even going to add anything after that. Take that, whatever that does for you. I, I love that quote. Okay, second thing from at Jacob Ernst 13. Do you have any budget camera suggestions for a beginner? Great question. Um, so when it comes to budget cameras, it depends, right? I, I kind of need a price range, but when I hear budget camera, I'm thinking under $1,000, right? So I would go with, do you have any glass? Do you have any lenses? And then go from there because it really matters whenever you're getting into DSLRs or mirrorless cameras, it matters what you're putting in front of that sensor, whether it's an APS-C camera or a full frame camera or a micro four thirds. So depending on what you're searching, um, if you want more of that depth of field and you like that look, I would go for a full frame camera, but that means they're going to be a little bit more expensive. So Sony and Canon both have great APS-C cameras. So the A6500, the A6300, and then in Canon land, you have the EOS R. But then when it comes to actually being really affordable, um, the Canon T5i, the Canon 70D, 80D, and all of the lenses that you buy for that, you can then use on other Canon cameras. So it's all about what do you see yourself doing in five years? What are the cameras that you're going to upgrade? to and maybe you can think about that with what lenses you're going to buy into and so that way the lenses you're buying now you can put it on this you know maybe more affordable camera you buy now but you can also use it in five years when you upgrade to that full frame so I'm a big fan of Canon and Sony and then also the Panasonic GH5 um, and that's a great question because I will link the B&H links down in the description below okay last and final question remember you can just at Sarah Dici on Twitter with the hashtag that creative life and I will answer your questions at the end of every pod. I thought this was a fun one from Isaac. Can you shoot your entire next review on the iPhone and only edit with iMovie? No external mic either. Um, you know what? I've been very interested in mobile editing recently because I found an app that actually made sense to me and had a few more features than iMovie. It's called Villo, V. L L O. And I've been having a lot of fun with it uh, for posting Insta stories and honestly just main feed videos. It's so cool to be in a space where, hey, we can edit these things straight from our phone, upload them to Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. What a time to be alive. Uh, but then when you enjoy the process of just making videos, I find a lot of joy in getting as much quality as I can for my Sony a7 III, the lenses, you know, my black magic. Um, so I, I, you know, don't see me shooting all iPhone videos anytime soon, but this is such a good moment to say the best camera you have is the camera you have with you, and that might be an iPhone, a Galaxy S7. Just start, guys. Just start. Thank you so much for listening to That Creative Life. Until next time, guys, make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you, B&H, for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next Monday.